a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. It's time for the Zero Limits Podcast, hosted by Australian veterans, chatting with high-charging humans with hectic stories from around the world. We'll give you the motivation to take on whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go. All right, Zero Limits listeners, on today's Zero Limits podcast, we are chatting to a, another, or actually a pair of uh, people today, uh, David Boone Benton and Sarah Adams. Now, Recently, I'll say recently, probably about two or three months ago, we had on uh, a good friend of yours, Dave uh, and, and Sarah, Chris Peronto. Tanto is better known as on uh, the movie 13 Hours. It's one of those things we, we're going to reference a little bit about the 13 Hours movie just because that's that w- what's been portrayed, especially for us here in Australia. It was a massive movie here in Australia and uh, it, it got a lot of a lot of. It made a lot of money, didn't it? Yeah, it used to get played in barracks a fair bit too. It did, yeah, especially throughout the military. All military guys love watching that movie. But um, so welcome to the show, guys. How are you doing? Pleasure to be here. Thank you. We're yeah. good, thanks. Yeah, awesome, awesome. It's, it's really good to have the pair of you guys because you guys have um, written a book as well, which we'll definitely touch on down the track, Benghazi, Know Thy Enemy, which uh, basically entails uh, exposing who these terrorists were, which is what the government failed to do, which is uh, sounds like a typical government thing to do. <laughs> We're yes, going through correct. a bit of issues here in Australia with the government, and uh, yeah, we, we know what it's like. Um, but let's just start off right from the start. I want to get to know both of you guys before we crack on with uh, the Benghazi story. Ladies first, Sarah Adams, you're a CIA targeter. You know, for us here in Australia, we don't have anything to do with CIA or FBI or anything like that. And so we're quite, you know, we, we just see what we see on the movies, um, essentially. So run us through exactly what a CIA targeter is. And first off, let's start off where you were born and, you know, what led to you joining the CIA? Because I have listened to a podcast and it was kind of just a, a spare of the moment thing. You applied and got the job. Yeah, um, I was born in a very small town in Michigan. And even as a little kid, all I wanted to do was travel the world. You know, and that's what happens when you grow up in small towns and you don't go to many places. But yeah, as you joke about, when I went to grad school, um, I did a degree and 
my thesis was on cashmere, um, which at the time seemed really cool. But then at the end of my program, as I was getting to the point where I have to apply for jobs, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have like a degree in cashmere. What am I going to do with my life? Um, so I was actually instead of preparing to defend my thesis, I went on the CIA website the night I was supposed to be practicing and I just applied online. And um, maybe about six weeks later, they called me in for an interview. So, yeah, it went pretty quick after that. But, yeah, I just right place, right time. I'm having the right experiences. I mean, as you know, serving yeah. in Afghanistan, they, they were plussing up the Pakistan Afghanistan department. So I was a good fit at the time. Um, and yeah, that that's how I got in and that's how I got started. When, when you talk about a targeter and see, since you like movies, yeah. <laughs> um, the best movie that talks about the profession is zero dark 30. Cause that, that walks you through um, yeah. you know, the, the experience of a targeter. So that is what we're most known for, right? Like um, finding um, persons to capture, detain or, gotcha, you know, or gotcha. whatever. But we also find people to recruit as well. So, so we get both sides of the coin. Yeah. Yeah. What year was, uh, what, what year did you join up? In 2006. Oh, 2006. And I left, yeah, and I left in 2015. Yep, yep, gotcha. So, again, as you said, as a CIA targeter, finding good people and bad people for people like Boone to go out and find and uh, take out, take off the, you know, off off the scope. Um, how, like, what's the, like, how's the, you know, the basic training and we all hear about the farm and stuff like this. Is, is, it, is this a, a thing and... <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is the farm. When I first went into CIA, I did the the career analyst program that wasn't down there. But then later on, the, the targeting course was. And we do a lot of things like you guys would do. Um, you know, we're not military. So when we go to those war zones, we have to take things like different weapons yep. courses, different driving courses. So all those type of things, you know, you know, happen, you know, in the U.S. and you do all your training so you can be prepared to go overseas. Sounds like good fun. Yeah, I oh, know. Yes. Hell yeah. So, like, in regards to the targeting job, I'm sure you guys are deployed all around the world. Um, you just, you know, I, you know, I have worked in places like, again, Iraq and Afghanistan where we were driving around these spooks, it would call them, to take them to their, you know, their meetings. Is that, is that what you guys do? You just go out? Do you, do you do solo jobs where you're just going out and blending into the public and... You know, obviously not going too deep into CIA tactics, but no, you do a variety of different things. Um, you support the meetings, like I told, like you're talking about. You, you know, you can assist at those. Obviously, like I said, you find some of the individuals to to start making meetings with. Um, you spend a lot of time meeting with the host country, um, especially if you're doing capturing detain operations. Obviously, you need the host country, um, unless it's a war zone, like you're talking about. You know, the U.S. can't just go snatch people everywhere off the streets. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's a lot of liaison relationships, you know, and just getting to know, um, you know, the local forces or your, your local counterparts there. Yeah, one, gotcha. one big difference, though, unlike an analyst, like a targeter is operational. They yep. are in the field. Gotcha. They are running around with the guys. So, yeah. Yeah. So- so when you're looking to build like relationships with the local people to get information, what would be the type of things you'd be looking for just to kind of establish that base contact initially? Yeah, when I'm talking about the locals, it's actually with the local services. Yeah. So either the local police, the local intelligence services, you know, maybe the, the Ministry of Defense, depending on what country you're in, um, you know. Just to be successful, you know, the best operations are ones where you both get wins from it, right? So so the person is impacting the U.S. in some way, and then they're impacting that country in some way. And the best that you can prove that to them, you know, the more successful you're going to be. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, right. That's uh, that's interesting. Now, just moving back to your younger days, uh, family. Like, uh, have you got a big family? And is there any prior history of military or CIA? Yeah, definitely no CIA. And well, maybe right. They just didn't tell me. I'm just <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, my, my dad's father served in the Navy for his career. Um, one of my younger sisters, I have five siblings. One of my younger sisters joined the Army, um, the U.S. Army. She was a veterinarian. But were, were there only two really within this generation that went um, into public service? So, um, yeah, we have a mix in my family. You know, one of my brothers a mechanic, one's a small business owner, one of my sisters an artist, um, another sister's a nurse. Yeah. So we're all over the place. <laughs> yeah. And then obviously, um, oh, uh, like, I don't know, I'm not sure how it works, but like telling your family about joining the CIA, is, is, can you tell them or is it just like, yeah, I'm just becoming a, yeah, a pastry movie, chef? In the movies, they just yeah. State Department. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, early on, I didn't tell many people and I was able to tell, but then there became a part of my career. I wasn't able to. Now I've obviously done the legal approvals to say it. Yeah. But the funny part is, so I did lie then. Um, and my mom actually believed me. She thought I worked for the State Department, which made the joke. It's really funny. And so my brother came out for an award ceremony and she sent him a bunch of texts like, um, did you meet Hillary Clinton? Because she was Secretary of State at the time. And he's like, why is she asking me if I met Hillary Clinton? I said, I think she doesn't know I work at the CIA. Um, so we made like jokes about it. Um, so, yeah, I, it was pretty hush hush. I didn't tell too many people. Yeah. Well, what was your uh, makeup job? What did you do? Sorry, what, like, what, what, what did you say you were doing? Like uh, State Department, just just paperwork? Yeah, I mean, at the time, I, you know, I said, hey, I wanted to move on to, you know, because she, she knew I was CIA. And I said, yeah, I just want to change from CIA and go work policy and kind of go work on some, you know, foreign affairs issues and, you know, issues overseas that the U.S. is involved in. Um, and she's like, yeah, that's cool. I would totally do that. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's crazy. And then and meanwhile, you're out there just targeting bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 so cool. That's so cool. How long is the the training process uh, to become a targeter? Yeah, it's about pretty much most of the CIA's programs about four months. I think the case officers go about six months, but it, it, it's a good chunk of time. And mostly it's so you can understand, you know, how everything's done in house, right? They, they hire the best talent. Now they just want you to apply things um, the way you know they do it administratively. Yeah, gotcha. Like within that that select group of people is there just different genres of people uh different i guess nationalities and just yeah. everyone can blend into different areas mm-hmm. type thing yeah it can be a mix like when you go in your actually first week at the agency they put you in with every single person so they could have been uh, hired as an accountant you know um any any job there so your first week you get to meet people from all across the organization obviously there's tons of diversity within the CIA it's really like about 50% men 50% women it's a pretty great work environment mm-hmm. actually for women um and then after that when you finally go into those long-term programs then you're only training with people in your exact discipline yeah right what, what's the success rate for training? Because I imagine with all the movies and that, it'd be pretty competitive. You'd get thousands applying for one role, surely. Yeah. Well, actually, to get into the CIA, it's very competitive. They get about 10,000 applications a month. Yeah, wow. And then depending on what program you go into, some obviously like case officers – a lot more people fail um, just because it's quite the critical job. Um, my targeting course, I think we only had one fail. Um, you know, so it just depends on the discipline. Yeah. Just two questions in regards to the training. Did anyone get waterboarded? Because it's always <laughs> in the movies. <laughs> they always train, they always waterboard their own CIA staff. I don't know. It must be a, tra- must be a movie thing. 
It's different. No, yeah, I never was waterboarded. The <laughs> most that happened is I was like locked in a trunk and had to get out. But that was yeah, right. That's still pretty cool. Been watching too much Jack Rowan, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Far out. Um, and then, so once you first, once you got your targeting, once you become a qualified targeter, what was your first, do you remember your first uh, deployment or first gig? Yeah, well, I'd actually been working, I went in the agency as an analyst. So yep. I did the targeting course kind of in real time. So I actually just kept staying and working on my account. So I was working in, um, in the Pakistan-Afghanistan border region. And then after that, um, you know, as you guys are aware, I moved to Libya and then I worked Iranian operations. Yep. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. All right, Dave, mate, let's uh, let's crack on with you, mate. Again, uh, previously we spoke to Chris and he's got an extensive background and obviously you do as well within the U.S. military. So let's, uh, let's start off where you were born, mate, and Run us through your childhood as well, how you work. Because generally, for us, most of us military guys, we're not the smartest human beings. That's why we join. That's why we join the military, especially <laughs> us grunts. Yeah. So, mate, yeah, run us through it. Yeah, I grew up in the uh, the Midwest of the United States in a place called Ohio, um, and I grew up like most of the kids around my age did, running around in the woods, playing with um, BB guns, watching GI Joe, thinking I was a ninja. So. <laughs> Yeah, you nice. Mate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mate, do do you, did you have any uh, family history within the military? I had a huge family um, history of people serving in the military, from uncles, fathers, brothers. It's just something that we did, absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And uh, any like within the last twenty years of this, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah right. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And so actually, yeah. No, you're right, mate. You're right. I say, actually, um, my brother and I served together for a long time. Oh, yeah, right. And then we actually served together in the intelligence community as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. So what year did you join up? And like, what was the process? You just uh, walk up to a recruiter and just say, mate. And, you know, obviously, we know for a fact uh, here in Australia, it's just literally one number. You either choose the, you know, the, the arm you want to go into, and then that's it. Whereas the US, it's kind of like a little competition. There could be like the Army, Navy, Air Force, right. all in one line, and they'll fight to get you, you know. Used car salesman. Yeah, like a used, <laughs> yeah, it's like a used car salesman trying to sell their service. So I, I had the luxury of being able to talk with uh, several family members who served in all the different branches in the military. So I knew that I wanted to go to the Marine Corps. And my older brother actually went a year before I did. So it was real easy for me. I just went straight to the recruiting station, talked to his recruiter and said, hey, I'm 18. I'm ready to go. Put me in. So it was actually pretty easy. Yeah, right. And th- that's it. So uh, you sign up, you get in, and then you head to basic training. How did you find basic training? Um, Actually, I was disappointed. But I, had to, <laughs> I knew what was going to go on. I knew the games they were going to play. Um, at the time, you know, I was a amateur fighter, so I was very physically fit. So it wasn't a challenge physically. It was just the games you played mentally. Yeah, yeah, I was actually kind of disappointed with boot camp. Yeah, yeah, right. And how long did that go for? Three months. Three months. Yeah, right. Far out. And then three months, you move on to what's the next step from there? Uh, Marine recon. Is that no? I was a Marine scout sniper. Marine scout sniper. Sorry. Yeah. So what's the process from there? Because again, just referencing Australian military, (laughs) you do your basic, and then you head on to your specific style of training. So if you go on infantry, armored, or whatever, is is that similar? It's very similar. So some of it's changed um, since I got out, but you go to um, Marine combat training, which they don't do anymore. And then after that, you go to the school of infantry where you learn what you're going to be, whether you're going to be a rifleman, mortarman, whatever it is. Yep. Um, so then after that, you go ahead and go to the fleet. Yep. Yep. 
So how did you find the the scout sniper training? Was that intense? So even before even before I got there, um, I ended up going to the regular infantry when I was there for oh gotcha. Yep, yep. After I was there, I did a deployment overseas. I came back, and then you have to take a selection course to go to the surveillance targeting solution platoon, or what we call the scout sniper platoon. So that's when I took the selection course and was accepted. Yep, yep. And that that first deployment, where was that to? Uh, Japan. Yeah, right. And how did you find that? Was that your first time out of uh, out of the country? It was, and it was actually a, a very good time. Yeah, yeah. We got to go to uh, Japan, um, Korea. Usually, we go to Australia. Yeah. Um, that, that trip got cut short, so we never made it to Australia, unfortunately. <clears throat> what happens on, on those uh, those top-style deployments? Obviously, it's not like a going to a combat zone. Is it just like you're stationed at a... At a, at a barracks and you just just working normally so a lot of it's um more of like force projection except for, especially for like the pacific area um so it, it's more of a show of force but you'll do a lot of training um a lot of interoperability exercises with other foreign militaries um strengthening those ties you know with our allied nations and it's basically just a lot of training yep yeah right and sorry what year did you enlist 93. 93, yeah, wow. A long time. I think it was before you were born, Lockie. That's about three years before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Old man. Yeah, Lock, Lockie's a uh, new generation, new generation army. They're, they're a bit weird these days too. <laughs> <laughs> Just going back to your scout sniper training, how long is that, that training? To, and obviously that's a that's a specialised side of things within the, the Marines. It is, and, and there's, um, there's a lot to it. So – um, you go to the platoon after you pass the indoc, and that's where you really learn how to be a sniper. When you actually go to scout sniper school, which is about, you know, three months long, you don't really learn anything. It's more of a test. Yeah. Yeah. So you learn everything you need to know before you get there. Um, uh, but that's just one of it. So we have a basic course. Um, we have an advanced course. We have a mountain or high angle course. We have an urban course. So it's not like you just go to, you know, the basic sniper school, and you're prepared. You know, that gives you the basic MOS. But after that, there's a whole lot more you have to learn. Yeah, right. Of course. Yeah, definitely. And especially all the different types of sniper rifles. I don't, I don't, I thought, what do we use? The Barrett? Yeah, Barrett. That's 50 cal. In the Australian Army, it's pretty, yeah. Otherwise, yeah, I think we use about three. Yeah, there's not, there's <laughs> the not H&K. many. HK. Yeah, it's not many. In regards to, the sniper school, we like how, how, like how good did you become as a, as a shot? Were you like a crack shot? Is it because there's different levels, isn't there? Isn't it different levels where people get classed? Well, um, that's in the regular Marine Corps. You have different rifle qualifications. Yeah. Marksman, sharpshooter, expert. Yeah. In order to even be qualified to try out for the scout sniper platoon, you have to be an expert. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. All right. So you must be a good shot. I'm okay. (laughs) (laughs) So you finish your uh, uh, scout sniper. From there, what happens? You get posted to a. Uh, battalion? Is it battalion? What do they, what do they call it? Sorry. Oh, a, a platoon. platoon sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Platoon. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're already in a platoon and they just send you to schools. Um, so I was with the platoon for my first enlistment. Um, we ended up becoming part of the uh, 24th MUSOC Special Operations Capable Maritime Special Purpose Force. And that's where our role changes slightly. And we go to another school, which is three months long, uh, which is we call the Reconnaissance and Surveillance Course, the RNS course. And that's basically close target recon for an extremist hostage rescue. Yeah, right. Yeah. Did you uh, did you get any deployments as a scout sniper? Um, we did. We deployed uh, several times. Yeah, right. Where to? 
um, all over the world, actually. Yeah, nice. Far out. So up until um, obviously 2012, where everything changes, what were you doing? Like, were you in and out of the world, around the world and deploying? So I stayed in the Marine Corps from 93 to 2000. So after the Scout Sniper Platoon, I actually left. Yep. And then I went to a full-time CQD platoon. Yeah, right. Um, where we were responsible for an extremist hostage rescue. Um, after that, I actually got out because there wasn't a lot going on in the world, not for the military. <laughs> yeah. That, what what year was that, 2000? Was that 2000? Uh, yeah. yeah, far out. <laughs> so then I actually went into law enforcement um, and became a SWAT cop. So I did that for a little bit until after 9-11. Yeah. And after yep. 9-11, just like everybody else, I wanted to get back at it. <laughs> um, I, I tried to go back to the military. And while I was doing that, I actually got called by the Department of State. And then I ended up going to the Department of State and deploying to Afghanistan. Yeah, right. So just going back to your police side of things, how was that process uh, getting into the police? Was that is that quite easy? So um, it's not easy. It's very competitive. Yep. Um, it, it's it's not easy per se, but it's not very challenging after coming from the military. The military and yeah. All the things I did in the military. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. And then uh, where, whereabouts was this? This was in Georgia. Georgia, yeah, right. And how'd you how'd you find that being a police officer coming from a fighting force to uh, a you know a political customer service force? Yeah. It, it was culture shock. Yeah, <laughs> it, it took an adjustment. Yeah, oh yeah, that's uh, that's crazy. And then you decided to get into the SWAT side of things again. That's stepping it up to the next level. How long did you spend in SWAT? Um, well, I was in law enforcement total probably for about three and a half years. Yeah, um, and um, actually, I walked right on to a SWAT team after I graduated the police academy and actually pissed a lot of people off because normally you have to wait for two years before you've been eligible to try out. Yeah. yeah. But because I had a relationship with these guys while I was still in the military, um, I had special preference. But yeah. it didn't go over well because a lot of people didn't like it. <laughs> so is, is there usually any kind of like selection course for SWAT teams or there anything is. like that? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, cool. Um, and during your time in the police, did you get to do anything uh, again? We're just referencing movies, just chasing down bad guys and LAPD freeze type thing? Yeah, basically <laughs> chasing crackheads, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about in the SWAT? Did you get to do anything cool in the SWAT? Kick down doors and arrest bikings? Yeah, we, we got called out on warrants. Most of our warrants were uh, drug warrants, again, tra- chasing crackheads, you know. <laughs> Oh, America. I love it. A whole different level of threat <laughs> over there, yeah. but everyone's got a gun. Yeah, that's it. it, it compared yeah, to every- as Lockie was just saying, everyone in the US. Like, I, I spent a lot of time in the US. I spent probably about six months a year in the US for, for work, and uh, everyone, everyone's everyone got just got guns. It's crazy. Like, yeah. it's- uh, which, Some are legal, some aren't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think a lot aren't, which is a crazy yeah. thing, which makes it a lot harder for the you, you know, US police to, you know, do their job because even just a vehicle stop, you don't know what's in the car. Whereas over here, you unless you're out in rural New South Wales or something, yeah, you're pretty safe. Pretty, if someone's got a gun, pretty rare here. But even then, oh, it's just a hunting yeah. hunting well, rifle. I, we had a police officer on, on not long ago. He was uh, he was shot 14 times in the 1990s. Wow. Australian police officer, but that's rare. Like that's a that's once in a blue moon type thing, which is a good thing. Uh, whereas in the US, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, which you know, you guys in the US, uh, the cops are you losing cops every almost every day, pretty much. It's uh, yeah. it's unbelievable. What was the basic training like for the police? Is it just pretty obviously? Yeah, was that, was that a culture shock as well? Obviously, coming from high tempo military training to just you know, Chief Chief Wiggum. <laughs> so a, a lot of the academies are actually run kind of like a boot camp. Yeah, um, yeah. 
But again, you know, it's not the same if you've been to, you know, military boot camp. Um, but a lot of it's uh, studying case law. Yeah. Yeah. You know, learning the law and understanding how it applies. So, um, you know, we, we do driving, we do tactics, uh, we do entries and things like that. But a lot of it's just a case law. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So just for both of you guys now. Uh, again, you got out in 2000, you joined the police, 2001, 9-11. Now, this is a day that changes everyone's lives, Lockie's, mine, uh, both your guys for sure, um, and any, any anyone that's been serving throughout the military or CIA or FBI, it just changed everyone's lives in the in the future to come. Now, just run us through that day because uh, it was a night time for us here and obviously morning for you guys. So run us through exactly, uh, start with you, Sarah. You know, can you tell us about that day and what you remember? Yeah, so I just got out of class. Um, I was in college. Um, so I think it was maybe, yeah, it was my, my morning class. It must have been an 8 o'clock class or something. And um, I came out of the building and everyone was kind of rushing around. Um, and then someone said, hey, they're putting it on a TV in the library. And so I go over to the library at my college and they have one of those TVs on a cart, you know, like those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's how old we are. Um, and then <laughs> it, it's like, so it's like this tiny TV and there's like hundreds of students standing there. And they had um, on, um, I think it might have been both planes hit by this time, but, uh, you know, around that time. And it said, you know, oh, the, there's been this attack. And then that's when they started making announcements. The school was closed. So um, I went home and I was actually working at Disney World at the time. That was my job during college. And when I got home, I got a call that Disney World was closing and I didn't need to come into work that night. Um, so that's kind of how the, my first day went. Far out. So you went from Disney World to CIA. That's a yeah. polar opposites. You <laughs> can be anything in America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mate, uh, Boone, yourself, mate? So I was actually on night shift. Um, and I got off that morning and I was about to go to bed and, you know, I was just watching the news and I saw the, the planes crash into the, the buildings live. Um, and I was like, well, it's going to be a long day. Yeah. So I figured my beeper would start going off and it did. Yeah. Right. It, it was obviously again, being in the police, was there any call outs? Did you have to go to any, you know, do some protection at any buildings or anything like any specific buildings? So during that time, yeah, everyone was in a panic. So, yeah. you know, all across the country, um, you know, all the high value targets or what they thought might be other targets were beefed up. So everyone was um, redeployed, you know, to protect certain government installations and courthouses and things like that. Yeah, it's 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 crazy because um, like how unfortunate and how bad and disgusting 9-11 was, you know, for these terrorists to be that fucking stupid, sorry about the, the language. But it was, in a way, a good thing because then it taught the rest of the world how to react and how to deal and prepare for what was to come. Because obviously at that stage, you know, you could get on a flight, no security checks and, you know, some places there was even nothing. Like you literally got your ticket and walked straight onto a plane. So it's uh, it was you know in a way a good thing that you know shaped the world in a way for security side of things. Um, so nine eleven happens and then you you get back into the military. You're like I want I want a bit of the action. So I, I tried to. So I called the recruiter um, and told him, hey, I want to get back in. Um, and as I was going through that process, the State Department, the real State Department, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and they they wanted me to deploy to Afghanistan to help them start their high threat protection program. 
So I actually did that instead because it got me out the door quicker. Yeah, right. Yeah. So the real State Department, not Sarah, she yeah. didn't call you. When we say the State Department, again, this is a loose term for our State Department. What is the State Department? Nobody knows. <laughs> no, nobody knows. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> the, the State Department in the United States, um, those are our diplomats. Those yeah. are our diplomats that go abroad throughout the world, and they represent America, but in a host country. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So they're, they're direct representatives of the president. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So you deploy with them to Afghanistan, uh, providing protection. Yes. Is it is it a company or is it you contracted to the State Department as a contracted as a like kind of like GRS with the CIA? So um, we were industrial contractors, so it was through a third party company for the State Department's diplomatic security service. Yeah, right. Yeah. What company was that? Um, Dyncor at the time. Oh, Dyncor. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. A really big company. How many like how many guys were deploying for, for this? Especially because Afghanistan, obviously, nine eleven's kicked off, and the whole focus just shifted to Afghanistan. And there was, you know, obviously the first deployments of the SEALs. Well, they go straight in within the first couple of months. They were straight in. Of uh, 2002, I'm pretty sure. Was it? I think ODA was the first ones in was there. Was it ODA? Yeah, ODA. CIA was the first. Too. Oh, yeah, CIA, CIA was in there, but yeah. ODA was the first. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Of course, CIA was the first. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They would have yeah. been there before. Yeah, we had a pararescue guy on. He was the first, one of the first guys in that CIA agent was, he was the first one killed in Afghanistan, uh, Michael. Right. Michael. Mike Spann, yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah, Mike Span. So, yeah. That was that was a crazy story. So you're you're working in Afghanistan doing this protection. How was that? Like, how was the the environment there? Because the first couple of years of Afghanistan was quite quiet in a way. It wasn't so kinetic, um, and obviously building up 2006, 2007, 2008. That's when it started getting just absolutely just crazy. How was it for you guys as uh, contractors, private contractors? It was actually very nice. Um, the people were very welcoming. Um, there were certain areas, you know, that were still occupied by hostile forces where you just didn't go. But generally, I mean, everyone was very welcoming and very nice. Yeah, right. Whereabouts in Afghanistan? Well, we were based out of Kabul, yep. but we went all over the entire country. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. It was, uh, it, it, when you say Kabul, we were at the, the now, or I shouldn't say now, the U.S. Embassy, where that was, in that location there? No, we were at the old embassy, which no longer exists. Yeah. Which we, was right next to the new embassy. Oh, is it? Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And what year was this, sorry, when you went over there? 2002? This is uh, 2002, 2003. Yeah, right, straight in the early days. I left Afghanistan, I was there a couple of years ago at the Australian Embassy, and um, it'd be interesting to see who's sleeping in all those beds right now, especially the US Embassy. That was a great embassy. We used to go there for pizza, pizza night, get some pizza, and obviously that's where we got our our bootleg beers as well. (laughs) Um, So from you get back from your contracting job and then moving forward – What's happening? You just in and out of uh, doing SWAT stuff, or that finished? No, so I continued to be a, a uh, law enforcement officer when I was home, you know, as a reserve. Uh, but I also continued to deploy. Yeah. So I deployed Afghanistan. I deployed to Haiti. Um, I deployed to Iraq. I'm still with the State Department. Um, and then when I was in Iraq, that's when um, I ended up going to the other State Department, the, the CIA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah right. So that's so you moved on to the GRS, which is yes. the the contracting group for the CIA. So yes and no. So there's not a lot of information about GRS. Yeah, um, we know that. Yeah, GRS is a part of the CIA. It's a unit within the CIA. Yeah. Um, 
there are staffers and then there are contractors. There's different ways you can get there. Yeah, gotcha. So technically you were CIA. I work directly for them, yes. Yeah, gotcha. So gotcha. Uh, GRS and Ground Branch, are they separate entities or? They are separate. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah, because you, you read them. Oh, I'm a mad book nerd, but you read about them a lot. And they, it seems like they just cross paths a fair bit, GRS and Ground Branch. Well, we, we come from the same places um, and we have guys who will go over to Ground Branch. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of the guys know each other from the military, but they are two different missions. Yep, yep. Now, during your early days of contracting, um, did you get into any uh, any contacts or any ticks or anything like that? Just you know, baptism by fire. Oh, definitely, yes, all the time. Yeah, right. So, how- Iraq in the early years. Yeah, yeah. So, you, you, when was the first year you went to Iraq? So, the first year I went to Iraq was 04. 04, Yeah, right. So it was starting to. Yeah, so starting to get kinetic. Starting yeah, to get a little. And it was that in Baghdad, like predominantly out of Baghdad? Um, we were primarily in Baghdad, but again, we were all over that country. Yeah. When did they start building that embassy in Baghdad? Um, the new one? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I, I left Iraq before that was built. Yeah, but gotcha. I think they started to break ground um, around 05 or 06. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. That's that's massive. I don't know if. Uh, well, you've seen the area. That that embassy is massive. Another place where you get our bootleg beer from. <laughs> um, that's yeah, that's crazy. So up until 2012, you're just in and out, just doing contracting for GRS. So you're one of the seasoned uh, guys when it comes to GRS for you know moving forward to uh, Libya. Yes. Yeah. Right. Just back to you, Sarah. Now. You're in and out of countries around the world. Was there any time where you felt unsafe or anything got a little bit hairy? Um, I mean, one time I was like tailed going home. That that was pretty stressful. Really, it was more the fear of what could happen than than things directly happening to me. You know, obviously, um, you know, I worked, I, I lived in town when I was in places. I didn't get to live on military bases or on compounds. So, you know, I had to drive around town on my own Um you know, go through checkpoints, those type of things. And that can be, you know, a little stressful. Obviously, I, I spent time near Afghanistan in another country. And um, there was a lot of attacks, you know, and unfortunately, we lost um, some Americans in those attacks, you know, so, so it was a pretty crazy time. Um, just so much uncertainty. Yeah, right. Yeah, a lot of people wouldn't realize you live in town. No, no, that's, uh, that's scary. Like, you're locked in in the compound yeah. on base. Yeah, I know. Like locked in a, a compound protected by GRS. You're you're out in the yeah, just living in some unit. At least the rent will be cheap. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I had a big house and it was guarded by just these two young guys from another city that had no military background. And the first day I met them, one got nervous and dropped his gun, and I'm like, <laughs> <"Long> here. <laughs> these are local guys. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. Americans. Yeah, no, they yeah. Were great guys, but I used to joke with them if if someone comes to take me, like shoot a bunch of shots in the air before you run, you know. So we had all these little jokes. Um, so. And uh, love for yourself, did you carry? Did you have to carry? Obviously, you, you probably did. Just carry whatever you wanted. Well, it depends on where you were. Yeah. Um, actually, in the capital of this one country, for some reason, we weren't allowed to carry. So I actually didn't have a weapon. But in other parts of the country, I did, which is strange. So, yeah, it unfortunately is based on the policy of um, CIA or State Department at a given location if you can carry weapons. Um, and then, of course, some of it depends on the country's policy, too. So so it does it does change if you have a weapon or not. Far out. Did that get ignored a fair bit by a few operators? Surely. 
Not really, but um, yeah, there right. was um, there was a huge suicide attack when I was there that Americans died. And so people did ask to carry guns and it yeah. was denied. And then um, I'd say about half of our staff flew home and they left tour early. Because I did that, yeah, right. which oh, is a fair call. Fair enough. Fair, yeah. fair call. Coming up to uh, Libya, like, have you been to that part of the world before? No, not for work. I'd only been to um, Africa on vacation as I had a friend that served in the Peace Corps in Africa, but I had never actually been to the continent for work. Yeah, gotcha. Just for both of you guys now, we're just going to, I'd like to move on to this uh, 2012 side of things because it was just a, you know, again, we only can reference what we've seen from the movie or from reading the books. What was the whole sole purpose for the Libyan side of things? Obviously, you got an ambassador out there. What, What was happening in Benghazi at that stage or Libya? Well, most of the stuff going on in Libya was just preparing for this post-Gaddafi world, right? I mean, when Gaddafi was in power, you really couldn't do anything in the country. So it, it was building just networks. Um, during the war, so many things got destroyed, even like the phone networks, for example. Um, there wasn't like border security. You know, you went in the airport, there's no one to like stamp you or put you in a system or anything. So a lot of it originally was rebuilding, making relationships with the new government is what the U.S. government was focused on. As you can imagine, though, with those security vacuums, the terrorists were also pouring in, taking advantage of, of, of the, the same issues within the country. Gaddafi was uh, killed. How long was it? Was, wasn't long before, was it? Yeah, so he was killed um, in the end of October in 2011. The revolution started in February of 2011. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. How bad was Libya with Gaddafi in control? I mean, it it was really interesting. Um, You know, he made like the capital Tripoli pretty prosperous and then pretty much ignored the South and ignored the East. So different people in Libya obviously had very different experiences. You know, some enjoyed the socialism because they were in his favor. Most other people suffered. Um, A lot of people, if they opposed him, were jailed, um, you know, or worse, killed. Um, You know, women were mistreated. Mm. You know, I mean, he was involved personally in a lot of rapes, raping school children and even um so it, it, it was a pretty horrible environment um for the libyans and i actually kind of like get a little frustrated sometimes when you hear some of the international community saying like oh maybe his son's kind of who would be best next to run the country and it's like you know like the daffies are over yeah <laughs> that should be clear yeah which which is good to hear from someone like yourself coming from the cia because again what we got to see arrest around the rest of the world was the Gaddafi, you know, prior was, you know, somewhat of a good guy. He was up having chats with the United Nations, you know, giving his talks and just trying to be a, you know, like kind of like Saddam back in the day, they were just trying to be the, the good guy. But it turns out obviously he was doing all this stuff that never really got released either. You don't get none of that yeah, information. He was, he was actually supporting a lot of the terrorist groups around the world. You know, I mean, the Red Army, I mean, if you name a terrorist group um, besides Al Qaeda, he was supporting it, um, funding them, training them, letting them come to Libya to train. So he was heavily involved um, in the growth of terrorism around the world. Yeah, right. And a lot of this it predates nine eleven. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. yeah, right. That before he had all that plastic surgery. <laughs> yeah, he's very flamboyant. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, when did you get to uh, Benghazi? Well, I went first to um, the capital in. January of 2012, and then I got to Benghazi in August of 2012. Yeah, just again, like uh, I hate to reference the movie, but obviously the compounds in Benghazi were technically not to not meant to be there, or you meant to be just like under undercover type well, thing. I mean, 
we worked in CIA compounds, right? Anywhere in the world, it's not like you put the CIA sign out. There. So, you know, I mean, we worked with clandestine operations. Um, so it's not like it didn't belong there. It was known within the government. It was there. It wasn't, it wasn't something off the books. It's just um, sometimes CIA isn't co-located with other government agencies when they live overseas. And sometimes they are. It just depends on the environment and the host country and security um, considerations and all that. Yeah, and then obviously within the U.S. department, with U.S. government, you know, some people within there were saying that they didn't know that it existed either, which is when they kind of, I guess, well, this is what I'm sure the book talks about as well. Yeah, just to be clear, so we call it the CIA compound or the annex. Yeah, um, it's actually a villa. Yeah, three houses in the middle of a neighborhood. Yeah, so yeah. it's not like a military compound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or anything like that. Yeah, gotcha. Far out. Yeah, and most people don't really know. Um, I pay that much attention to CIA operations, right? I mean, I mean, think of in your own country. I mean, would you know like the second or third largest city in another country and what your people are doing in it? A lot of people focus on the capital. So, you know, they know, oh, the U.S. is in the capital of every country. But, you know, Benghazi just was not super important um, in the world at the time. During the revolution, it was because that's where they, they basically ran the war out of. But after the fact, you know, just people kind of forgot Benghazi's role and were focused back again on the capital of Tripoli. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, and you didn't say anything in the news about it ever no, until no, Gaddafi got not, taken definitely out. Definitely not. And then just in regards to the US Ambassador Chris Stevens, was he flying in and out of Benghazi and back to Tripoli? Was that a like, was Tripoli the main – no, it was just Benghazi. Well, well, no. So he was actually – so remember, he was in Benghazi during the revolution. Yeah. He left, um, I believe it was in November of 2011 – he just came back to Libya in May of 2012. So this trip in September of 2012 was actually his first visit back to Benghazi. So it was his first visit as ambassador. Yeah, gotcha. And he was highly respected within that community as well, especially with the Libyans. Yeah, he, he had spent a long part of his career in North Africa. He had also been an Algeria expert. And as you, like you said, he helped lead the U.S. side of the revolution. So he, the, the Libyans loved him for his role in um, helping protect them and defend Benghazi. And obviously before this uh, event in 2012, who was the main, uh, I guess, coming from a targeter, who was the main controlling terrorist group within, uh, you know, outside the, the militia in uh, Libya? Yeah, so, so when I went there in January, um, my sole focus was to um, go after a leader um, of Al-Qaeda in the lands of the Islamic Maghreb, so AQIM, and his name is Moktoub al-Mokhtar. He wasn't based in Libya, but he was traveling there, broken relationships, spending a lot of time there. And then he ended up being one of the masterminds actually of our attack. So he was probably the top target besides another individual named Abu Anas al-Libi, who was involved in our previous embassy bombings in, you know, in Kenya and Tanzania. So those would probably be the two highest profile in early 2012. Yeah, gotcha. yeah something you mentioned also, which is actually in the book, which kind of clarifies it. Um, you mentioned terrorist group and militia. Yeah. So a lot of these militias actually were terrorist groups. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, actually, uh, you know, what it brings up just really quick. Yep. During the revolution, they made militias to fight, right? But you could be a part of Al-Qaeda and join the militia. If that yeah. makes sense. So the militias did not care. They actually wanted terrorists to join because terrorists had the weapons training. They had tra- training in war zones, et cetera, because Libyans actually never really had that experience unless they actually were members of their own army. Yeah, gotcha. And, and look, just quickly, how how well were they funded, that these uh, militias? 
they were very well funded because they were funded by obviously during the revolution it was bootstrapped but yeah. but by places like Qatar right so you had yeah. to get all the money in the world um, <laughs> after, though, they were funded by the government of Libya so the guys who attacked us from militias they were funded by the government of Libya they're still funded by the government of Libya 10 years later so they have a lot of funding they're also funded by like Turkey and unfortunately they're funded by um, NATO yeah. Oh, far out. So during that time in Benghazi, while the revolution was happening, was there a large threat to Westerners at the time or was it kind of a surprise when the things started to happen or was it expected an imminent threat? Not during the revolution. During the revolution, um, the militias were actually fighting the Gaddafi regime. Yeah. So um, obviously NATO supported that. Yeah, right. Yeah, and then when we were in Libya throughout 2012 – it got increasingly dangerous um, against Westerners because the um, Islamists wanted to take control of the country. And they actually realized, oh, the only way we're going to be able to effectively do this is push the Westerners out because it's their influence that's stopping us from implementing Sharia law. And if we yeah, allow them yeah. to be here, their influence will affect how our government's formed. Yeah, right. gotcha, gotcha. Now, Boone, mate, on to you. So coming up to Libya, you're in and out of the world, Iraq, Afghanistan. You're a seasoned veteran. Um, you've been in probably 100 gunfights. Mate, um, What? Uh, how, how did it come up, uh, that job? Is just Does it just come up across the desk? Mate, you're getting posted to Libya for this long? Um, no, like we're, we're assigned to certain areas for a certain amount of time. And then they move us to other areas. Um, during that time, it was just my turn to be assigned to, to Libya. So that's where I ended up. Yeah. Uh, did you know any of the guys before you turned up there? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. We've all worked together um, for a long time. Um, obviously, you know, Tonto was was one of them. Yeah. Actually, Tonto and I started working together back in Iraq when we were with the State Department. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And then we both ended up, you know, at the agency later, not at the same time, but later, um, you know, working certain areas. And then we ended up uh, in Libya, in Benghazi together as well. Yeah, right. Have, have you guys got any photos together? Definitely in those early days? I'd love to get so a couple. he takes a lot of photos. He does, he does. Yeah, I'm not really a picture guy, so I don't, but I'm, I'm sure he has a couple. <laughs> he does love a photo. So you get to uh, Benghazi. How's the, you know, how's the, how is it? Look, again, I don't want to reference the movie, but I have to. <laughs> <laughs> They're cruising up in cars and there's militia pointing guns and people are pointing guns back and there's predator drones and everything, apparently. So for the most part, we, we attempted to blend in. You know, obviously, we lived off the local economy. We lived out in town. Um, so we were just part of the backdrop for most of the time. Um, it started off good, but it increasingly started to get worse. Uh, so the majority of the time, like, it wasn't an issue going through a checkpoint. It just depends on who was in charge of that checkpoint. Yeah. Because, again, not all the checkpoints were controlled by the same militia. Yeah. Um, the majority of the time, though, it wasn't a problem. But then as it became more hostile, as attacks increased against many Westerners, not just us, um, the Brits, um, <clears throat> several other uh, NGOs, it started to get more aggressive. Yeah. And I guess for yourself, you would have been used to it coming from Iraq or Afghanistan where, you know, each different tribe, especially in Afghanistan, different tribes run different checkpoints. And then in Iraq, it was different militias running different che- – it was – Bit of a pain in the ass sometimes getting through checkpoints because you had to show different passports and different everything to get through places. Now, how was it? Like, what, what were you, what were you guys doing? Were you just rolling out and uh, arming up SUVs and taking uh, people to meetings? And yeah, we we were out in town a lot, um, but actually, 
Uh, we're not really in up-armored vehicles a lot. It really depends on what we're doing. Uh, the majority of the time, we just try to blend in. So we might just be in a regular car sometimes. Mm. And then other times, if the threat warrants, then obviously we can get an up-armored vehicle. But up-armored vehicles tend to, uh, tend to stand out sometimes. And did GRS, like, do they arm you up to the teeth? You just get to choose what you want type thing or do you just... We don't get to choose what we want. Yeah. We we have um, a decent support a committee that yep. will choose the best weapons that we need. Mm-hmm. You know, and we we have the best weapons that we need for our mission. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And look, from what I understand, from what Chris uh, Chris also spoke about was, uh, you know, some of the main efforts were uh, weapons buyback in Libya in Benghazi. Was that? Well, was, I mean. Man pads. I think that's a man pads. And- that's what they wanted to do. That, yeah. They, they wrote a lot of newspaper articles on it. Um, I actually, um, I can't even remember how many years it was now. I had a friend and he was really good with numbers and he, he calculated like how long it would take to buy back, like just the man pads by how slow, like these governments uh, programs are buying them back. And it would take like 7,135 years. So <laughs> there is no effective program. Yeah. To buy back weapons. I mean, Try that in the U.S., right? Same with Libya. These people didn't have weapons, so you're not going to go to them after the revolution and be like, we're buying back your weapon. They're like, hell no, I've never had a weapon. You ain't touching it. And that's the mentality. Yeah. 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 There, there are um, programs like that that we do all over the world, not just Libya. Um, but like Sarah is saying, um, like they had warehouses of, of <laughs> not only like AK-47s, but tanks. You yeah, know, right. Orders, yeah. You know, man pads. Like they, they just fought a revolution. And they Yellow cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Chris kind of indicated that, uh, you know, even when there was a buyback, those weapons were just redirected somewhere else. Can't comment. <laughs> <laughs> Up until uh, September 11, 2012, did the mood change within the city? Was there any. You know, obviously combat indicators, again, coming from, you know, combat side of things, you roll through a town and it starts to get quiet or things, you know, seem a bit off. That's when you know things are about to kick off. Was anything like that? So a lot of things changed in the city. Um, Obviously, there were increasing attacks. Um, Red Crescent was attacked. Uh, The British PSD was attacked. Um, The American consulate was attacked Um, indirectly, but but it was attacked. Um, the black flag started to show up in certain neighborhoods, which was rare. Um, more killings were going on um, throughout the, the city. So it definitely started to increase. Yeah. And was there anyone that was responsible at that stage? Because, again, look, this is where I guess the book comes in about Al- Al-Qaeda. Like, obviously, the government didn't really say that they were involved. Oh, I don't know why they were trying to uh, dispel that. But run us through, like, who do you think was – was obviously Al-Qaeda was taking control and putting up those black flags and turning it on. Yeah, just really quick, you know, when Boone talks about all those killings in the city, those were targeted assassinations. Those were established by Al-Qaeda. Remember when I brought up Abu Anas al yep, yep. who was involved? Yep. He actually set up the assassination cells in Benghazi. Another then terrorist named um, Sufyan Binkumu, who had been um, – at Gitmo, he set up the assassination cells in the eastern city called Dorna. So it, the, the assassination cells were set up and ran by Al-Qaeda, and then they would report back to Al-Qaeda, and they were mostly assassinating any Libyans who wanted to join official Libyan government services. So like to join military services, police services, intelligence services, yep, yep. be a judge. They were killing them so they could not get in the way of implementing Sharia law. Yeah, gotcha. Gotcha. Refer to the movie. Um, oh, yeah. 
there, there's good in the movie. There's good in the book, 13 hours, but it's just the perspective. Exactly. Of what the guys were going through. Yeah. At that yeah, time. yeah. It's not the totality of the circumstances. So um, our book has the benefit of hindsight and connecting the dots. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Have at that time. So um, one of the other things that was happening, <coughs> excuse me, um, Al Qaeda was moving into the country. Al Qaeda was establishing training bases and training people and moving more people in. Um, we didn't know this at the time. Um, and then you you were asking, you know, well, why did they try to change that narrative? Um, one, it was an election year, both for the United States, gotcha. but also for the Libyans as well. Um, and one of the things that our um, current administration said was Al Qaeda was on the run. They were no longer a threat, where in fact they were actually thriving right there in the area of Benghazi. So what was Al-Qaeda's, what was their objective, like strategic objective getting into Benghazi? Yeah, well, at first it was actually training terrorists and the terrorists were mostly likely going to go fight in Syria. So they're actually setting up Benghazi as one of the key terrorist training locations, you know, in the world was their hope. Um, They did set up a base. Um, They they started in late 2011, but they had a base in Benghazi by the time of the attacks. Um, And then a very senior former Al-Qaeda in Iraq fighter, Abubakar Hakim, was actually leading, he was a French, it was like a French Tunisian terrorist. He was leading all that training for Al-Qaeda in Benghazi when we were there. And then he was involved in um, attacking the consulate as well. You're right. You're right. So um, for you, Sarah, now I understand that you flew, you were flying out of the country. You were heading back to Europe somewhere, Germany or? Yeah, I was going out for like a one day meeting. So I went up to Europe um, and then on so the morning of September 11th, and then I kind of came back the next day, so I missed the attacks. Oh, I shouldn't say this, but you timed it right, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> actually, you know, I, got, I was questioned by um, U.S. Congress, and they actually asked me if I found out about the attack. Bullshit. Like, <laughs> Far out. Uh, and, you don't uh, trust anyone in Congress. They government strikes again. <laughs> we don't do that. And when, when, was the you, yeah, when was the first time you took, you two guys met? We met in 2009. Oh, so you already knew each other previously, and you, you would have known all the other guys as well, I guess, through the, yeah, through we, the network. We all worked together in other places, to, to include Tonto as well. So, yeah, we were, we were a, uh, a team that was well familiar with each other. Yeah, yeah, I knew probably about a handful of people when I got to Benghazi, but I knew of a lot of people because, like I told you, earlier in the year I was also working in the capital, so I knew most of the personnel who at least were sitting over in Benghazi because I worked out of our main yep. station. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Now, Boone, let's uh, let's run through that day. How was the mood, obviously, the morning of September 11? Run us through, through, through that day, mate. How, how was uh, the mood during the – obviously, you wake up in the morning, you boys are just, you know, um, big tyres just throwing his uh, tyre around the, on the outside, apparently. <laughs> That's what Chris You're was saying. He was, games, yeah. So, so actually, uh, Tonto and I were on QRF for the rest of the teams. Um, so we were actually just sitting in the room playing video games. <laughs> yeah, nice. What what game was it? Just had to be for, called. Just, just had to be has to be Call of Duty. Oh, Call of Duty. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's how we get all that training done. <laughs> um, so you guys are just relaxing, just kicking back, and it, it, there's no, obviously, again, no indication completely of what was going to happen. But um, run, yeah, run us through the rest of that day, just as run, running as there, per schedule. There was no real indication, no specific threat, but there were a lot of indicators um, that something could happen. And it was on 9-11, you know, so obviously, you know, we're always expecting something to happen. In Benghazi, it was never when, 
you know, or it was never, you know, if it was like, when, when is it going to happen? But we didn't have any specific intel saying, hey, at this day, at this time, this is going to happen. But we, we were always on alert. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. Coming up to what, what time did the attack kick off? About 9.40 local time. Is that correct? Yep, 9.42. Yeah, so you, you obviously got the annex and then you got the the compound where the ambassador was staying. How far? That's about a kilometre, was it? About a mile. A mile, half. sorry, yeah. And how many guys were protecting the ambassador's compound? So normally there was only um, two to three guys over there, but because the ambassador came in, they brought in um, two other additional State Department guys. So they were actually beefed up a little bit normally than what they normally were. So I think they had about five or six guys over there at the time. There was no military within any of this, was it? Is there, is, no. Isn't there normally U.S. Marines that are part of the protection for ambassadors no. or no? So, excuse me. Um, if it's a established embassy, yep. you'll have Marines, but the Marines aren't there to protect the embassy. That's usually a local guard force. The Marines are there to destroy classified information. Oh, yeah, right. That's their oh, whole shit. purpose. Yeah, gotcha. Now, they can... Yeah, they, they can be a um, a response force, but that's not their main goal. Yeah, right. There was none of that in, in Libya at the time at all. Yeah. In regards to when you talk about response, would you know if there was U.S. Marines there doing this destroying stuff, if they had to, would the response have been a little bit different? Yeah, it never would have happened. Yeah, that's they, what I'm stop the assault before it started yeah that's a marine pride remember you're asking a marine (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah gotcha um yeah mate so let's just run through you um so the attack kicks off at the the ambassador's compound and you guys are just hearing this all over the radio and your uh cia boss what uh, was the station chief station chief what's his name bob is it bob is it yeah, he's a chief of station. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, what was he like before this? Obviously, what he's portrayed to be as and what Chris was talking about him, he was not very liked and not 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 really competent to be out there to start off with. So yeah, if you look at it, he wasn't a bad guy. Um, I actually got along with him very well. I didn't have any issues. Uh it's like anywhere, you know, personality. Sometimes you butt heads with people, sometimes you don't. Um him and Tonto butted heads all the time, which isn't unusual. Um, I didn't have any issues with him, but he was grossly incompetent. He yeah. had no business being out there at all. But he wasn't an evil person. He was just incompetent. Just incompetent, yeah. Which is, you know, yeah, there's plenty of those people around. <laughs> yeah. Especially uh, the government. Yes, yeah, yeah. Far, we've got yeah, our prime minister's incompetent at the moment. So the, the attacks kick off. You guys are basically stood to. You kid it up, ready to roll. Tanto's in his shorts and his Mickey Mouse shirt. <laughs> and um, you're ready to go, but uh, they're telling you to stand down. It, it, like, is it just because of the incompetence that he was telling you guys to stand down because he didn't want you guys to get, you know? No. So um, they were delaying us. They were delaying us because they were trying to get February 17 to come help. We didn't want February 17 to come help, one, because we thought they might be involved. Um, and as we found out later, in hindsight, um, they already told us they were never going to come help us anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah, what was the reason? They were just too scared or just didn't want to bar of it? They, um, there is, we actually identified over 30 attackers from 17 February at the attack. <laughs> so it's because they were involved. Holy shit. And how big, like uh, just for the listeners, 17 February was just the local guard force? 
No, they were actually the largest militia in town. They were about 5,000 men strong at the time. Yeah, right. Fine, yeah. They were contracted to be an armed response for the U.S. consulate. Yep. Or for the special mission compound, since it wasn't officially a real consulate. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So you guys, uh, you get the green light. Oh, you didn't really get the green light. You just took off, jumped in the SUVs and took off to the compound. Run us through it, mate. Like, uh, yeah, we again, we only see what we saw in the movie and read through the books. I mean, the movie's probably about 80% accurate. Um, the book is actually a first-hand account of the guys who are actually there. Um, we head on over there. Uh, we had a checkpoint. We have to negotiate that. Immediately, we get fire from that um, that area to where we silence that with a 40 mic mic. And then from there, <laughs> we start to split up. Yeah. So you split up and you head. Uh, you start, um, I guess, advancing towards the compound itself to retrieve uh, the guys that stuff. And at this stage, you had no idea uh, what happened to Chris and the other guys that were inside the building. Um, we didn't have any idea of anything. Um, we lost communications at that time. We had communications with each other, but we didn't have the communications with uh, the state guys anymore until we actually breached the compound. Were yeah, their comms down or was it just intercepted, compromised? Well, they, they were um, dealing with the attack. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we kind of lost comms briefly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Roger. And like how many people um, you get in, there's just fire and everything. They've set the building on fire, obviously. Uh, how many people are inside this, this compound? Because there's people everywhere, isn't there? There is. So it, it's definitely chaos on the compound. Um, there was a minimum of 80 people on that compound, if not more. They actually set fire to two buildings. They set fire to um, the security building where the local guard force was. And then they actually set fire to Ambassador Stevensville as well after they couldn't get into it. Yeah. Um, the, the thing is, uh, for me, um, we know that obviously the militia went in and did all this. And then did they disperse when you guys come in and then the pro- uh, Libyans come in because obviously there's the pro Libyans so, that dragged out Chris uh, Stevens. Yeah. So what actually happened was um, when we were engaged the first time, when we were at that checkpoint, um, once we launched those 40 Mike Mike rounds, that actually scared the, um, the, the terrorist enough to where they actually started to flee the compound. So by the time we got to the compound, most of them already left. Yeah. Um, they weren't leaving though. They were just, you know, um, flanking us, if you will. Yeah. And when those friendlies um, pulled, you know, the ambassador out, that was almost four hours after that initial attack. There were no terrorists left in the compound. It was, um, you know, just local Libyans kind of being nosy, seeing what was going on, um, trying to, you know, see what happened, look at the fire. Um, even the looting was done by then. So so this is well past uh, any of the fighting. Yeah. And yeah. For you, yeah. Sorry. Okay. Uh, so for you, Sarah, you, you're... You've done your one-day trip. You're on your way back into Tripoli or? I'm not doing the attacks. I don't come back to Tripoli until the tax. The next morning. Sorry, that's right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. The the, the timeline gets um, um, convoluted sometimes to where um, people confuse when Ambassador Stevens was actually found. Yeah, yeah. As Sarah was saying, um, all the terrorists were gone. We were gone. Um, The attacks actually started on the annex well before anyone was actually found Christopher Stevens, unfortunately. Yeah, gotcha. So you guys uh, at the Ambassador's Compound, at what stage, how long do you think you were there before you head back to the Annex? 
we were probably there for maybe an hour. Um, we had to locate all the Americans. We had to clear all the buildings to make sure that no terrorists were, were still there. Um, and then we attempted to recover any remains that we could. Um, we found Sean Smith. Unfortunately, we weren't able to find Christopher Stevens at the time. So we assumed um, either he was taken or, you know, we, we just couldn't find his body. But we knew if he was still within the villa, there is no way he could have survived. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. So you guys, uh, you grab Sean Smith uh, and you guys head straight back to the annex. What's the- Well, we attempt to. We, yeah. Um, but before we could head back, we were actually attacked again. Again, yeah, right. And how how was how were those contacts? Were they were they decent decent firefights? Were they just uh, no? They they were they were short, um, you know, intense but very short. Yeah, is, is there a reason for that? Were they obviously just just testing you guys to see what your reaction was, or you know, is that what you think? Um, maybe I just think that when we responded, um, it wasn't the response that they wanted. Yeah, so it wasn't in their best interest to uh, push the issue. Yeah, gotcha. So you just get back to the annex, and then how long is it before this next, you know, uh, f- the actual attack, you know, on on the annex kicks off? It was probably um, thirty to forty minutes. Oh, I shit, think the not first long. Attack was around midnight. Yeah, and it was just a firefight, was it? Just do they coming in waves? So we actually saw them come in, and we weren't sure if they were friend or, flo- or foe. Um, we attempted to deconflict. We attempted to make sure that it wasn't Feb 17, which, again, we didn't know was actually the enemy at the time, but we had a pretty good idea. Um, but, again, we didn't want a blue-on-blue situation. So we actually saw them um, show up, take positions, and start probing our positions, trying to figure out where our positions were. And then one of them opened up with small arms fire, and then that's when we responded. So what were your guys' ROEs when you first got in the country? Was it just protect yourself? No, um, our ROEs are very strict, but they allow us to pre- protect ourselves and or a third party. Yeah. The third party being, you know, other agency personnel or, you know, if we see fit, another American. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously at that stage, ROE kind of went out the door anyway. Um, no, we, we actually stuck to our ROE. Did you? Yeah, right. Well, yeah, there's times where we could have fired and we probably should have fired, mm. but because we couldn't PID or... Um, because there were kids who lived in a house where um, one of the attackers was flying an RPG at gotcha, the gotcha. Auto, that we, we waited to fire until we got a better angle. Yeah. So yeah. we actually stuck to our OEs pretty well. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And uh, so you guys are just in, in the fight for your lives uh, all night long for, you know, 13 hours, essentially, you know, and you guys are based all on top of these annex uh, buildings. So we had pre-staged um, positions that we could fight from that were reinforced um, we had extra ammo up there. Uh, it was just a contingency plan, just in case our base ever was attacked. So at what stage uh, does the mortar attack happen? Again, how did they target it? Was it was it already a pre-planned targeting? Did they have these coordinates already, or was it done on the night? Did they call in fire? Was it bracketed in, or did they have a direct, so direct hit? The, the, the mortars was the last stage of the attacks. Um, right before the sun was coming up, still kind of twilight. So we had what we thought were um, attackers who were attempting to get coordinates throughout the night. We had guys on foot. We had a vehicle go by. In hindsight, I think they already had the coordinates. Surely they would have, yeah. Um, Yeah, especially once we found out who actually did the attack on the annex. 
which wasn't the same people who actually attacked the consulate. They were actually two different groups. Um, and it, it, they didn't bracket at all. Um, they were extremely accurate, which makes us believe that they had the coordinates anyway. And all the targets that were hit, there were actually six mortars fired very rapidly. And it could have been from two different mortar teams, mm. not one mortar team. And they actually hit our skiff, where all our classified information was and where all our leadership was. So they knew exactly what they were targeting. Yeah, gotcha. It was 81 mil? Um, I actually don't know. Not sure. Yeah, yeah. I believe, we, we they were, believe yep. it was. Yeah. But I, I've never got confirmation on what it was. But we believe it was 81 millimeter mortars. Well, yeah, right. have to ask that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a mortarman. So. <laughs> so prior to the attack, did you have locals working at the annex? Or was it just so, solely yeah. Americans and contractors? No, we, we had a, a small um, local staff that provided external security for us. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't very big. And as soon as the attack started, or actually before the attack started, they all left anyway. So yeah. in, in hindsight, do you think they were compromised and that's how they got the locations? Were they gaining no. intel or anything? No. 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 And uh, your interpreter, he uh, is, it, was he real? Was this guy real? He was very real. He was real, yeah. <laughs> Was he was he as badass as he was in the movie? Yes, he was. <laughs> he was, yeah, right. <laughs> Just yeah. He was probably the baddest dude there that night. Yeah, right. That's 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 cool. Um and so when that mortar attack happened, that's when uh was that when Tyrone Woods and Glenn Doherty was was that when they were both killed? Yes. So we actually were attacked from um the far left flank, which didn't happen the entire night. It's the first time they tried to hit us. From that, excuse me, from that flank. So they opened up with small arms fire, and then immediately, very rapidly, there were six mortar rounds that you know were, were extremely effective. Yeah, far out, and oh, far out. That's crazy. Um, at what stage does uh, the reinforcement arrive? Obviously, um, is it was it seventeen February that eventually come in the morning when the sun was no. up? No, no, it wasn't. So. Um, our guys came in right before the mortars. Yep. Um, our, our team, Tripoli. Yep, that's right. Yep. With, yeah. And they came with a local militia that was actually part of the attackers. So <laughs> we were actually rescued by an undercover military intelligence unit who worked for Qaddafi. That's crazy. That's crazy. So they were in – I can't believe that. That's I haven't heard that before. We wouldn't know who's anybody. <laughs> yeah, far out. So you guys, yeah, so the reinforcements come and then eventually you guys uh, ship out, um, move out to an airfield to get extracted. Is is that what happens? Yes. Yep. So um, we get to the airfield and then we load up all the um, base personnel, all the non-shooters, and then all the wounded. We put them on a private jet um, and then send them back to Tripoli. Then the rest of us waited there for a Libyan C-17 or C-130 to take the rest of the shooters back, and then the remains are fallen. Yep, and w- when do you guys find out about Chris Stevens? So we actually found out, um, well, I found out on the way to the airport. Um, the base found out a little earlier. That information just never passed to me personally. Yeah, so he was taken, they thought he was still alive when he was extracted from the building, and they took him straight to a hospital, is that correct? That is correct. They thought he was, but he wasn't. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's um, – so they took him to the hospital. And, like, how long is it before the – I guess the – you guys found out where he was or the government, U.S. government, did they head out? How's it, how's it, how does it work to go get him after all this has happened? 
Sure, I can do a little bit of that. Yeah, of course, so, yeah. So one of the individuals who helped the ambassador get out right after he um, helped the ambassador out of the building, he was captured by an individual named Ahmed Abu Qatala. The U.S. detained this individual, and he's in prison in the United States as a mastermind, even though he wasn't. He takes this, this young kid, debriefs him, you know, shakes him down a bit. He lets him go around two in the morning. So the kid actually has the phone still that was on the ambassador. So he starts calling the numbers in the phone and saying, hey, brought an American to this hospital. So it was at two in the morning when Americans at least heard that likely Ambassador Stevens went to the hospital. They thought it was maybe a ruse, right? That an attacker picked up one of the phones in the building. So they didn't trust it at first. So they sent a local Libyan, which is really funny. The Libyan that went and identified his body, his brother was one of the Benghazi attackers. Um, But he went, he knew the ambassador and he confirmed it was an ambassador. And he actually uh, made sure then the body got transported to the airport so so everyone could leave with the ambassador. Oh, wow. Oh, geez. And for yourself, Sarah, how was your, like, what was your state of mind? You're stuck outside. And I'm guessing, you know, in a way you wanted to be there uh, with the guys. You know, what's happening? Like, what's your thoughts? Yeah, well, it was really interesting because that morning I went to the embassy in the country I was in. And nobody had been told yet the ambassador was dead. So I told our deputy chief of station, so he's number two in the country. And I said, hey, the ambassador's dead. We lost Ronan Bob. You need to fly back. You know, I'll handle these meetings. And he said, now nah, I'm going to go for dinner. I have dinner plans tonight. I'm just going to stay here. Um, that was my first interaction. <laughs> then I get into the embassy and none of the State Department know. And they say, oh, we're pr- praying they find the ambassador. So kind of all day, I just kept my mouth shut inside the embassy because I didn't think it was my place to actually tell them because um, Boone and Tig had told me on the phone that it happened, but it actually hadn't gotten, it went to senior levels, but it, most other people weren't entirely clear what happened to the ambassador. So I was just very quiet about it, um, led my meetings that day, and then I headed back to Tripoli. But I yeah. missed them. So when I got to yep. Tripoli, they were already gone. Yep, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Now, I guess this leads on to uh, the reason why you two guys are you know, here on this podcast is to talk about the book, the self-published book. And when we talk self-published, is there a reason why it's self-published? Because no one else wanted to take it on? <laughs> Well, we got some weird responses. Of course, we got a lot of people being like, oh, it's too political. We got people saying the story's already been told. I said, well, then name some of the attackers because nobody can. Um, We had someone say we only had an alt-right audience. So in the U.S., that's like super far right wing. And I said, no, that's not the audience. Like, Americans care about terrorism on both sides. Don't give me that crap. So we thought, hey, we don't want all these outside influences because this wasn't a book. We actually did a seven year investigation and we were going to put it into (laughs) our book about our time in Benghazi. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to keep in complete control of the process. We were still adding updates um, like a week before we even released it. So it, it gave us the opportunity to give the most up-to-date version of our investigation to. So that's why we chose just to keep the control and not be influenced or have to go with of course. a crazy book company who will put out a Benghazi book, right? Yeah. <laughs> and obviously the, the, the book is about uh, identifying these uh, people that you know coordinated the attacks. Exactly. So it's not like, like Sarah said, we didn't write a book on the attackers. Yeah. We put our investigation into a book. Gotcha. And you you guys uh, self-funded this investigation as well. And we still are. It's still open. Yeah, right. It's still open. Yeah, right. So yeah, gives- we've gotten 
about maybe between 125 to 130 of the names. We know at least 150 were there. So we're trying to get as many of the names of the attackers as humanly possible. Yeah, awesome. And what's the what's the end goal for these names? Is it any government's going to do anything about this or are we just going to send the punishers so the out there? Idea, the whole idea is to get um, the people behind it yep. to really push um, or put pressure on their elected officials to do something about it. So the attackers that are in custody, we want access to them. Um, we want to debrief them. We want to extradite them to the United States so they can stand trial. The ones who are at large, we want to put them on the X so we can either capture them and or kill them. Yeah. Yeah. Kill kills probably better. I'm, I'm pretty pretty yes. blunt. Yeah. <laughs> in in regards to that, when you say you know, the ones that are still at large, are they prominent figures within Al-Qaeda or any other group out there right now? Like are they on the media or anything? It's actually a mix. So some are very prominent, but they're very prominent because they fight for the government of Libya. Um, Others, people don't even know they're involved in the attacks, which is very dangerous, as you can imagine, because these people aren't watch listed. Um, They're not on wanted lists. They can travel freely anywhere in the world like that will issue them a visa. Right. Because nobody's actually tracking and locating them. Um, A lot of the terrorists are actually involved also in training terrorists um, for Syria. So so they're definitely involved in kind of like the global jihad game. Just our book, though, is going to highlight some people that people have never heard about, right? Because no one's done an effective investigation. Yeah. And so does the book uh, cover anything else? Like, We're definitely going to get a copy because um, Lockie's a book geek and yeah. we collect uh, and read the books from all our guests. Is there any other information regarding the U.S. government in a way? Because obviously it was a bit of a fuck up on their behalf for not responding. Well, it'll be well. We don't really go into the DOD response because the Benghazi committee um, that I worked on did a really good job of that, and it, it really isn't important, right? Like the DOD failed; they haven't fixed their failures. I mean, clearly, um, so we can't do much about that. We want to keep the focus on the attackers. So basically, what we do is we walk through each attacker. We give you his photo. We give you his true name. We give you his nationality. We give you his like jihadi background, and then we actually give you his current status. Yeah. Yeah, right. you know, yeah, right. He's alive, he's detained, at large, deceased, and there's a some that just we can't even find. And so we actually lay that all out. So another agency, you know, you guys focus on the U.S. We're not even actually that focused on the U.S. bringing justice. Yeah, we're happy if it's the French, the Algerian, the Emirati, anyone. Yeah. 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 You guys want to go. Yeah. We really don't care who does it. We don't think our government has done it. So we did this and released it. So other governments also have the information. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I wonder if there's a way you could like do like a crowdfund and uh, build some money up. Yeah. Just put some bounties out there. I'm sure you'd get that done privately. Yeah, we could probably get bounties. We definitely can get bodies to send in. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah, sign us up. <laughs> we'll, we'll take that. Um, yeah, right. And like how, when it when it comes to these terrorists, they're right around the world. All the all these people that you're targeting, this is your job, CIA target. You, you probably, you, yeah. Boone, you've got the best person to help you find these people because far out. Definitely one of the best targets. If it, was, if it was just yourself, mate, you'd struggle, I'll tell you what. 
Where's yeah? I know what us infantry guys, our targeting indication is pretty crap sometimes. We just shoot where we think there's an enemy. So that's a good to have a CIA up and the guts. Yeah, just just fire all in the same direction. Yeah, so yeah, and we try to highlight what you said that they actually fight around the world. Um, so we talk about if they fought in Afghanistan, it's in the book. If they fought in Algeria, it's in the book. If they fought in Iraq, it's in the book. If they went to Syria after the attacks and fought, it's in the book. If they were involved in other attacks that killed Americans or Westerners. It's in the book, different kidnap operations we put in the book. So yeah, we want to prove to people, hey, this isn't some local guys that got out of hand. These are longtime seasoned terrorists. Some even go date back to the Sudan era when um, bin Laden was there before Afghanistan. Yeah, right. That's yeah. how old and historic these networks are. Wow. And far out. That's that's crazy. Um, oh, I just lost what I was about to say. So have you had any trouble with like obviously self-publish, but basically jumping through hoops for the CIA. Yeah, did they have to prove? Because doesn't book? with uh, military books, don't the DOD have to pretty much red pen everything that you do, and you can say this, you can't say this. So I imagine it'd be even worse for the CIA. Yeah, so or State us, Department. Um, we, yeah, so we we had it approved by the CIA Review Board, the Publication Review Board. Yep. Um, they actually um, weren't too hard on us, surprisingly. Yeah, right. But we also had it cleared by DOD as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I guess because again, the information you're putting there was just about you know targeting terrorists, not the well, U.S. I actually work for the DoD, so you actually you only have to send a book to um, an agency if you worked for the agency. So we worked for CIA, and then I worked for DoD. So we unfortunately had to put it through two processes. Yeah, so it made it go extra long. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, right. And again, as I said, you guys would the book just talks about terrorism and finding these uh, guys responsible. Nothing about the U.S. Oh, I suppose if it said anything about the U.S. government, then they would just like, nah, no chance. Oh, no, we say plenty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's some CIA dirt in there. And Is there? So, yeah. Um, oh, shit. We, we do spill a little tea here and there, but we actually had a lot, and we cut out some of it because we really wanted to keep the focus on the attackers. You know, there's been so many committees into State Department failures and DOD failures and, C, you know, maybe not many in the CIA failures, but – we want people to start shifting off the politics and say, hey, here's the actual bad guys. Let's call call them the problem and let's go after the real problem and get the root cause. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. Gotcha. You don't you don't mention uh, Hotel Charlie at all. Uh, Hillary Clinton. I don't want to say her name. Because I don't know, she'll, get us, she'll get us killed. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, I'll leave that out. <laughs> um, <laughs> so how, how's the reception been of the book going out to the public? People all over it's actually been very good not only from the public um but from um some of our colleagues within the the ic community the government um intelligence community as well so there's a lot of support for the book um most people believe that an injustice was done by our mm. government and it was even one of the um the so-called masterminds abu katala um who is serving a prison term right now as sarah said He's labeled as a mastermind by our U.S. government. He wasn't even an attacker. He's a bad dude. He's a terrorist, but he had nothing to do with Benghazi attacks. He was just a bystander. He was a looter, and he's serving 18 years as the mastermind. Yeah, right. Far out. Have you guys been back to um, Libya since to do some of this investigation? Yep. Not yet. No, not not yet. Oh, shit. Here we go. Do you need uh, need any security? (laughs) (laughs) Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I guess if you were to go back there, you'd get a lot more, I guess, uh, 
it's the, the heart of the operation. So you'd probably get a lot more answers out of there. And I'm sure, Sarah, you'd have a lot of contacts within that area too, good and bad. The really interesting thing, though, um, you know, that we've alluded to a couple of times is the fact that our terrorists now fight for the government of Libya because they never created an army, so they pay our terrorists to fight for them. So the problem is the U.S. backs that government. So even if we were to go there, we would probably have to work with the opposition to the Libyan government, who's General Haftar, because the U.S. and NATO are aligned basically with the terrorists in Libya, unfortunately. It's a huge policy failure. Um, So even if we went there, we couldn't make much traction without basically our president or someone very senior in our government changing our Libyan policy. Yeah, right. And is there a a current US um, establishment in in Libya or is it? That's it. Failed state. Failed state. Gone. Yeah, they're based in Tunisia and they're talking about going back to Tripoli, but they don't know who any of these attackers are. And most of our attackers at large are either based in Tripoli or they live outside of Tripoli and come into Tripoli to fight. So basically everyone who attacked them 10 years ago are now down the street and they don't know who they are and they aren't aware of it. And they're making plans and not factoring those terrorists in. Yeah. Oh, far out. So, yeah, this will make it just a little bit hard for you guys to go back there and a lot more dangerous. Well, it's it's dangerous for everyone. Um, <clears throat> like Sarah alluded to, uh, like a lot of these guys aren't on any watch list, so they can travel freely. You know, they can come to the United States. They can come to Australia. Yeah, right. Um, there's nothing stopping them from doing that because, again, they're not on a watch list, so it's not like they're known terrorists who can't travel. And a lot of them aren't just Libyan. Like a lot of these attackers, two of our attackers are Canadian. Um, yeah, one right. of our attackers um, was um, um, German. Another one was Swiss. So they're not just Libyans. It's not just a Libya problem. Um, this is core Al-Qaeda, and they're thriving in that environment. And they're still a threat to everybody. Yeah, yep. another thing, too, when you talk about the threat, um, when our attackers fled after the attacks, a lot of them, as you know, we brought up quickly, they went to Syria. They actually fled the country on official Libyan passports in fake names. So the government issued them passports prior to the attacks. So, they right. flee. so this is how much we can trust the government of Libya. So think about it. if they're issuing, they're doing the same thing as the Taliban. They're issuing terrorist pa- um, passports to terrorists and nobody's doing anything about it. <laughs> what are you doing? Like it's crazy because we, we we don't get a lot of this information. Again, we only get what, what what we get to see on the media and obviously fake news. So it's great to hear the you know the actual story, especially from someone from the CIA like yourself, Sarah. It's uh, absolutely incredible and Boone, awesome, mate. So we've been talking for almost an hour and a half now. It's been just so good, like super insightful for us as well. Again, we're avid readers. We've read. Uh, we're definitely going to read this book 100. percent um, we've read 13 hours and watched the movie, obviously, and it, this fully gives like a, a, a the, the big picture. Obviously, there's only so much you can put into a Hollywood movie. And uh, just quickly on the on the movie itself, how well you said probably about 80 percent was correct. It's probably about 80 percent correct. Um, again, like you said, they don't have a lot of time to explain everything. Yeah. So it really was a perspective of what the guys were going through on the ground. Um, they did take some liberties where they combined characters or they deleted characters and then they changed the actions of some characters um, for that personal connection. For example, um, in the movie, everything that the character Jack did was actually Tig on the roof. Um, yeah. Roan and Jack went to Bud's together. 
So they had that connection. So they wanted that in the movie. Mm -hmm. But Jack was actually on a different rooftop. Rome was actually on the rooftop with Tig, Oz, and Bub. Gotcha, gotcha. And how was your how was your actor David uh, Denman? How did he go? Did you did he play the part right? He he did okay with some of the mannerisms. Um, but I I wasn't hanging around reading books while the rest of the guys were like working out in the gym and doing stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> he, he did pretty good with the mannerisms. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. So again, we've been speaking for a good hour and a half. It's been so so great. And uh, so we've got a couple of just final questions um, just to tie it up. And um, actually, before we do, where can the guys, uh, our listeners, uh, find the book? Obviously, just on Amazon, uh, any th- through any bookstore online, pretty much? Yeah, mo- most um, bookstores should have it, um, you know, in your local, in, in Australia. And then on Amazon are probably the key places um, for you guys over there. But we have sold through some bookstores in Australia, so we know that they're are able to order them. They're not going to be on the shelf. So you kind of got to go up to the counter, yeah. say, I want this book sent here, and they can do that. For yeah, them. You can the guys listen, they can get through Booktopia. Booktopia. Yeah. yeah. There you go. And uh, if they want to get a signed copy, is it, is, that a, is it a possible thing? We can do it, but it's very expensive to ship it there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Far out. Yeah. Like it's probably going to cost you more than the book cost. Yeah, you know? probably better flaunt. Yeah, really want, but it's not. Um, we had to do it for someone in Canada, and it, it was almost more than the book. <laughs> oh, was it? Yeah, right. I'll be back in the US probably next year, so I'll uh, I'll I'll come. Yeah, I'll have to come. It'll probably be cheaper to fly there. Yeah, (laughs) definitely fly there. Yeah, so moving on to these questions. uh, First question is, I'll ask both you guys separately. Uh, Sarah, start off. You know, what advice can you give to people just to complete their goals and, you know, take stuff to the next level? Again, for yourself, you you worked at Disney Disneyland and then you become a CIA targeter. What advice can you people do? take that next step in life. Yeah. I mean, I think the important thing is, you know, people say do what you're passionate about, but I really think work on something that has a mission, right? You want to work at something you believe in. um, And then obviously state working on something you believe in, right? Have the integrity to do the right thing, to work hard at it, to get the job done. Right. If people aren't doing the job, right. You know, you need to step up and do it. You can't just sit around like, oh, well, it didn't get done. If that would have happened, nobody would know who these terrorists are. Um, So I just think that's really important to like you need to take a leadership role in anything you're working on. Yeah, that's great because, again, you're showing that motivation with what you guys are doing with this with this book. And, you know, I guess, um, you know, finding out who's responsible for taking the lives of your friends. Uh, which is, you know, a good thing. You know, us come from the military, same thing. You know, when we lose a, lose a guy, we try and do their best to figure it out and find out who it is and, you know, get them off this planet. So, uh, Boone, mate, same same question. Um, well, and I know you guys are all military guys and, and most of your guests are um, from some um, elite military unit. So I, I would say for a lot of uh, younger men who are aspiring to take that route, you know, to attempt to go to some specialized unit, um, prepare beforehand. It's one thing to have the will and the mindset, you know, to, to want something, but you have to prepare uh, in order to actually achieve that. And a lot of guys don't do that. They'll show up for a selection course and they want to be there really bad, but physically they're not prepared for it. Mm. You know, um, mentally they're not prepared for it. So do your homework ahead of time, be educated on what you're trying to do and what your goals are, and then prepare physically beforehand to actually achieve those goals. If not, it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, no, no, exactly right. Especially when it comes to fitness as well. I think there's one people 
don't realize that once you get into, you know, even try out for anything, it's generally fitness, especially within the military and those, you know, being a, a scout sniper, that would be all about fitness. You know, you're running up hills and I've, I did an attachment with snipers in Afghanistan far out. They put me, put me to work. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, second question, what is the plans for the future? Sarah, start off. Well, I mean, we have day jobs. I mean, I, I work for the, still work for the U.S. government. I do research and development. So I basically try to find ways for them to do like their jobs, like faster, you know, smarter type of thing, you know, get to those targets quicker. Um, you know, th- there is a potential for a follow on book. I mean, we have a whole investigation, right? We have a lot of information we learned to do with Libya and terrorism and, and European terrorism that obviously didn't exactly fit into that night on September 11, 2012. So, you know, we may do something there, but I actually spent a lot of my free time volunteering, um, getting people out of Afghanistan and working on yeah, Ukraine. Right. I run an NGO coordination network in Ukraine. So really that's my main focus right now. It, you know, it's just keeping people safe, um, you know, during these crises. Yeah, definitely uh, shoot us the link for this NGO and we'll definitely tag it in with all that stuff. Um, again, yeah. Yourself, uh, Ben? So uh, I'm pretty busy uh, teaching firearms and tactics full time. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, but when, when I have the time, my whole goal of, of this book is continue to get the word out, um, to put pressure on our government to act. If our government won't act, then to hopefully get a foreign government to act. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then uh, Sarah and I are just gonna have to do it ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and we're over the hill, so we we're gonna need some young recruits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, done, done. So, so, so sign us up. Um, uh, when, when you say uh, you want the government to, you know, take take a bit of responsibility and go after these these pricks, <laughs> do you think it'll happen like soon, later, or this administration that you've kind of got now is a bit? You know, bit bit shaky, a bit shaky on the legs. Yeah. So this administration definitely won't act. So we'll have to wait for the next administration. Yeah, and, and like just quickly, obviously that's uh, starting to work its to- way towards. <laughs> where, where do you think this next administration is going to go? Uh, Biden's got another four in him, easy. <laughs> I don't well, luckily, at least in January, we do have um, you know changes in Congress. Um, Boone and I do have intentions to talk to them about a few things, obviously, on the oversight of the intelligence community, um, especially talk to them about things like watch listing. Mm-hmm. Um, we think it's, it's the government's responsibility to watch list terrorists. It shouldn't matter who's the leader. So there are some some key items we are going to try to work um, with the administration come January, not having to wait two more years. And then, you know, as we've alluded to, um, any foreign government who reaches out to us, like if they have Libyans in custody, like let's say it's Italians and they have Libyans in custody, we'll send them photo lineups to use, um, you know, with their detainees. I mean, we're happy to share. We collected everything completely open source. So we're happy to give to anyone who's really interested. Um, you know, another country building a large embassy um, in Libya is the Emirates, United, United Arab Emirates. Yep. We think they could, uh, our information could be useful to them to protect their embassy. So those are the type of things we're going to focus on while our government's messed up. Yeah, right. Far out. That's yeah, that's right. that's super cool. Now, uh, third question. Um, both you guys are absolute badasses. CIA, which is just super crazy. State and, Department. Yeah, State State Department. Actually, you said you work for the government now. Is that the government? Is... Yeah, I work for the Department of Defense. <laughs> okay, just making sure. <laughs> <laughs> is your name really Sarah Adams? Is it? No? Yes, I just have the world's most boring name. But... <laughs> <laughs> 
and Boone yourself, mate, absolute you know combat veteran. You went through one of the probably the toughest battles of your life uh, in Benghazi. Like uh, you, uh, I don't know, like you, you couldn't fight. You, I don't know. It's just getting overrun by such a established uh, militia and only being a, only a handful of you guys taking them on for you know an extended amount of time. It's absolutely incredible. So you're an absolute badass. But uh, final question is, uh, I want to bring you guys back down to the normal human level, just like you're a normal human. Do you have any um, guilty obsessions or anything that people don't know about you? If you, if you know, for example, myself, when I go to the gym, I listen to Mariah Carey, and I'm six foot four and 260 pound, and like to lift heavy. <laughs> and for me, it just brings me, yeah, I don't go nuts. It just mellows me out, and I just lift some heavy weight. So we'll start with you, Boone, mate. I'm sure you've got something. Uh, I absolutely do. <laughs> it's not a secret. So I'm addicted to Chick-fil-A sweet tea. Ooh. I don't know if you guys have Chick-fil-A there, but. I've had it. There. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can buy the, you can buy the gallon. Uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I've drunk one of those whole things and I felt so sick the next day. So much sugar. But you know, you're right. They're pretty good. They're pretty good. Is, is that it? That's all you've got? Those chicken sandwiches. Oh, I've, got, I've got more, I'm sure. Yeah. The chicken sandwich is good. I've, I've got Mariah Carey on my playlist too. So there, there you go, mate. There you go. We can train together. <laughs> uh, Sarah, yourself? Actually, when I work out in the gym, I listen to the most inappropriate rap ever. So you and I talk about that. Um, NWA. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would not want my neighbors to hear. Um, but, you know, really, like, I guess my main obsession is. Um, ice cream, but it's really funny. I used to be obsessed with milk. And when I was getting my background check to go in the CIA, I had one of my kind of bosses at the time, like the FBI came and we're doing our background checks. And they asked her like, Hey, is there anything that, you know, Sarah could be compromised for? And she said milk, like to be funny. And my boss was all mad at her. He's like, you didn't take this serious. I said, well, she's kind of right. Like, I don't know if you have me a kind of ice cream when you have me in custody in another country, you know, I might like you a little more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Oh, there you go. If the terrorists are out there listening, just offer yeah. a bit of uh, a, bit of, a bit of ice cream, and she'll tell kind you of. she'll tell you everything. <laughs> Spill the beans. Now, awesome guys. Um, you know, I reached out to you, Boone, and uh, you got back to me straight away, mate. And uh, really appreciate both of you guys coming on and giving us your time and sharing your story here in Australia. Now, if uh, our listeners want to get in contact with you guys, they can head to. I know Sarah, you're pretty much invisible. You're not on social media. We're actually on Instagram. Um, it's it's at and then Ascari Media Group. That's yep. A-S-K-A-R-I Media Group. And you actually can find me. I'm actually, I do most of my social media on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, yeah. And just in true name as Sarah Adams. Gotcha. And yourself, Boone, you've got uh, obviously your business and your personal account. Yeah. So I've got um, DB underscore Boom on Instagram. Yeah. And then Threat Management Solutions. Um, and then we're on shootingclasses.com. But that's the only social media I have. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So if any of the listeners want to reach out and, you know, uh, maybe you've got some information these guys might want to use, uh, definitely uh, reach out to them. Uh, again, yeah, thank we you. we actually created, yep. uh, quickly, we created, and you'll see it in the book, a Proton email account. It's just Gazi Tips, G-A-Z-I, and then T-I-P-S. Yep. at protonmail.com. So if anyone does have tips anywhere in the world, they can send them to that box and we'll keep the people's information of, of course, um, 
confidential and not share who we got it from, but we'll use it in our investigation if it's useful. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, right. That's great. Yeah, because it's funny because I, I get to see the the statistics of who the listeners we've, we've got. We've got some ones like in Iran and Saudi Arabia, so – I don't know if you're listening. They're just building packages on you. <laughs> yeah, they're probably just building packages on me. <laughs> uh, thanks again, guys. Thank you for your time, and uh, love to catch up with you guys uh, in the, in the near future. Again, I spend a few months in the US every single year for work, and uh, love to catch up and have a chat and uh, have a beer and have some ice cream. Yeah, let us know when you're here. That'd Definitely. be awesome. That no, awesome, guys. Thanks again. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. As you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, Add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour-over filter bags, got some merchandise, and just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So... While you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now, look in our bio, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So again, jump on to 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.